Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Jonathan Lamontagne. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Tufts University, who just published a study that found we have to take immediate global action in order to have a robust impact towards a future with tolerable climate. In, in the media, there, there seems to be this undercurrent of not necessarily climate denial, but the sense that because there's so much uncertainty about both the climate system and the human uh, economic systems and how those two systems will interact, that we really ought not to take action until those systems and their interactions are better understood. And from a robustness perspective, this really struck us as, as somewhat upside down. When you're dealing with a system that's highly uncertain and the consequences of being wrong are terrible, it's really a call to be more conservative in your actions, that you really ought to act even if you're not sure whether or not you need to act because the consequences of inaction are terrible. We'll be talking about his study, the costs of climate abatement to achieve both tolerable climate and economic conditions, and the narrow window we still have to take action. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Before we delve into your paper, let's set the stage. Where do we find ourselves today in terms of the climate? Well, um, CO2 emissions from fossil fuel sources are continuing to rise, um, as is the trend in mean global temperature. 2018 was the fourth hottest year on record, and eight of the hottest years on record occurred over the last 10 years. Since 1880, temperatures have risen about one degree Celsius. And for the U.S., last year marked the 22nd consecutive year that was above average in terms of temperature. And in addition to that, 2018 saw an incredible rise in natural disasters. So there were 14 disasters that exceeded a billion dollars uh, for a total of $91 billion in terms of climate and weather-related disasters. As we're continuing to have anomalous extreme weather, there's a growing acknowledgement both in the public and in the media about the uh, potential climate sources of a lot of the extreme weather that we're experiencing. You mentioned the $91 billion, and you really framed your study in economic terms, like what is it going to cost? What is the present value? You were looking for tolerable climate outcomes. How do you define tolerable climate? So um, the, the terminology tolerable windows comes from the economics literature where they're trying to identify sort of levels of economic burden that a society and an economy can bear uh, relatively comfortably. And um, so we framed our paper in terms of both tolerable climate and tolerable economic conditions. And in terms of tolerable climate, we frame our paper in terms of two degrees Celsius, so limiting warming to two degrees C by the year 2100. It's not necessarily a magic number. It's a number that's used in a lot of policy discussions. We define tolerable economic conditions where the present value of abatement costs as a fraction of gross world product do not exceed 3%, and that climate damages do not exceed uh, 2% of gross world product. So when you thought about the study that you conducted, what questions did you want to answer? In the media, there, there seems to be this undercurrent of not necessarily climate denial, but this sense that because there's so much uncertainty about both the climate system and the human uh, economic systems and how those two systems will interact, 
that we really ought not to take action until those systems and their interactions are better understood. And uh, from a robustness perspective, this really struck us as, as somewhat upside down. When you're dealing with a system that's highly uncertain and the consequences of being wrong are terrible, it's really a call to be more conservative in your actions, that you really ought to act even if you're not sure whether or not you need to act because the consequences of inaction are terrible. And so what we really wanted to do was not only to illuminate sort of what are the, the key driving uncertainties that, that dictate sort of the spread of potential outcomes from our actions, but also how rapidly would we need to act to be fairly confident of achieving tolerable future given the wide range of uncertainties that exist in the coupled human and earth system. And what did you find? So what we did was we sampled 24 different human and earth system uncertainties, including the climate sensitivity and future population growth, things like the carbon intensity of the economy, in addition to what human abatement actions will be. And what we found was that the leading drivers of variability depended both on the metric that you're interested in and also in the time period in which you were evaluating it. So what's important to the, the climate and warming uh, in the near term, so sort of out to the mid-century, is very different than what it is at the end of the century. And it's also very different if you're concerned with, for instance, climate damages or the cost of abatement versus warming. So different things are important to different metrics. Okay. So can you give us one example of one of those metrics to make it more concrete? One of the metrics that we considered was the warming. And so we looked at it not only as a snapshot in the year 2100, but also in every five-year increment from 2030 onwards. And what we found was that near-term warming was controlled almost entirely by the climate sensitivity, so how sensitive the climate is to CO2 emissions, whereas at the end of the century, the experienced warming by people living then is driven mostly by the abatement actions that were taken earlier in the century. So there's a real shift in, in what's driving the warming that we're seeing from the climate sensitivity itself in the near term to what human actions were taken at the early part of the century um, in the long term. Right. So the human actions that we take today versus the climate, the way that it's going to be experienced in 2100 by humans on the planet then. We will bear the cost of action today, but we won't actually be around to reap the benefits, which is tolerable climate. That's largely true. Near-term action on, on climate is certainly going to be very expensive and very costly for us as a society, but the benefits will largely be borne by future generations. That being said, there are benefits that are non-climate related to having things like renewable energy. So for instance, if you reduce the number of coal-fired power plants or oil-fired power plants, you'll have less particulates in the air that cause things like asthma and other health effects. So it's not as if we won't have any benefits in the near term from transitioning away from fossil fuels, but the primary climate benefit will be borne by those in the future. You said just now that it was going to be expensive. How do you define expensive? And this relates back to the present value that you discussed earlier, as well as the percentage of the economy that we should be willing to spend or that we will find a tolerable economic condition. We looked at abatement costs that were, in, in terms of present value of, of global world products, uh, exceeding 3%, so 3 to 4 and up to 5% of global world product were sort of the range of very expensive scenarios that we had in our, 
in our study, although that is highly uncertain. So it depends in large part on the cost of alternative energy sources, which was also a source of uncertainty that we sampled in our study. The cost of abatement isn't driven only by how quickly you abate. It's also driven by technological growth, which is something that's very difficult to project into the long-term future. How much is currently the world economic output? So, so in the paper, we're talking about relative values. And so it's not theoretical, but we didn't quantify it in terms of absolute numbers. We were looking at relative numbers. So, you know, you take the cost of abatement and you divide it by the total gross world product going into uh, 2150. So then if you were to say aggressive climate abatement action, that would be 5% and something that's more moderate is like 3%. Is that how you would define it? Well, I would say even 3% would be pretty aggressive. I mean, or one of the things to compare it to is how much the United States spends on, on defense and how much NATO countries are required to spend on defense. And so people would certainly not say that the United States defense spending is, is small, but relative to our overall GDP, you know, we're not talking about 15 or 20% of GDP. It's something more along the lines of 3 to 5. So 3% of GDP or gross world product is still a fairly large number. Yes, that makes perfect sense. Thanks for putting it in that context. If we think about wanting to take action, you say in your paper that aggressive action does not guarantee a tolerable future. What would compel us to actually act? Well, I think that not taking action guarantees failure. And so taking action, it's still a gamble, but it's our best shot at having a tolerable future. The other thing that I think would motivate people to take action or to push for leaders to take action is to really take a longer view at society and, and your place in society. And so it's true that you may not yourself reap the benefits of these actions, but we're part of a community. And, and um, I think if people start thinking in a longer term way, taking action, even if you don't personally benefit from it, it's still a worthwhile thing to do. A lot of people do feel that way and are motivated in exactly the way that you describe. But I also often hear people say, well, I'm going to be dead by then, so it's not really my problem. What do you say to those people? Um, <laughs> well, I find that a very hard attitude to reconcile with my own experience. And, and maybe it comes from being a new father. When you're holding a newborn baby, 2100 isn't that far out that child will be alive in the year 2100. And so there are certainly people that, that have that attitude, but I, I would really encourage them to think about the conditions that we're talking about and the consequences that you read about in, in scientific literature about climate change are going to be impacting people that are alive today. And maybe that would motivate some people to view the future as, as something that they should be more concerned with. Hmm, yeah, I like that, what you said just now but your a newborn being alive in 2100. So let's say we don't take action, because right now that's what it's really looking like, that nothing will happen. Uh, and as my 12-year-old pointed out to me, that if it weren't for the ocean, we would all be dead already, because it would be too hot. What will the world look like if we do nothing? A lot warmer, for, for one thing. I mean, you all are sitting in New York. I'm sitting in Boston. And um, if you look at the sea level rise maps for Boston and New York, I mean, things are going to get very uncomfortable for people living in coastal cities, particularly on the east coast of the U.S. Uh, in the mid-Atlantic, where you have subsidence going along with sea level rise. There's the real potential that major 
American cities are, are going to be in real trouble. And if you look internationally, places like Bangladesh are going to be in real trouble with persistent flooding, and there'll be very likely uh, migration issues. As people can no longer live where they're currently living, they'll begin to migrate. If you look at the migration crisis that was sparked by the Syrian civil war, it's an example of what's to come in terms of really desperate people that are fleeing their countries, trying to find somewhere where they can live and be somewhat safe. You mentioned in the study that you had 5.2 million alternative outcomes. Yes. That's huge, first of all. How did you come up with that huge number? And then the second question I have is, how wide is the spectrum of potential outcomes out of the 5.2 million alternatives that you came up with? Sure, that's a great question. So we took the 24 different sources of human and earth system uncertainty and we added to that policy uncertainty. And for each of those sources of uncertainty, we came up with ranges, high and low values um, for each of those uncertainties. And we developed those primarily from the literature, but then also taking our own expert opinions about what are reasonable values for high and low ranges. And then uh, we did a sampling of that space. So in order to get the precision that we needed in our sensitivity metrics, we really needed to crank that sampling the level up very high. So that's how we came up with the number 5.2. It was, it was a statistical result, really, that required us to have that many. Uh, we then used high-performance computing to simulate each of those different worlds using the dynamic integrated climate economic model that we used. And um, from those 5.2 million worlds, we were then able to compute sensitivity indices. So you're looking at not only what's important on its own, but what uncertainties are potentially interacting with each other. And we were also able to identify what are the driving factors that give you either success or failure and what's the probability of success given certain abatement uh, pathways and also different levels of climate sensitivity. So then in your mind, out of all of those, how many are actually truly likely outcomes? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that talking about what is exactly likely to occur is a very difficult thing when you talk about population growth and technological innovation over the next century. So you could imagine being an engineer or a scientist or an economist sitting in the year 1900 and trying to imagine what the transportation sector would look like. And um, that would be an almost impossible task. And so I try not to, whenever I can help it, really make assessments about what is or is not likely to occur. Instead, we really framed our paper in terms of robustness. So we're saying you will have or you will very likely have conditions of failure if the climate sensitivity is high and we don't take action. And so we're not saying how likely in an absolute sense those those conditions are to occur, but more in a conditional sense. So given a course of action, what is the likelihood that you'll have success, if that makes sense? Yes. Thank you for explaining it that way. That makes so much more sense now. With the results of your study, did anything surprise you? I would say that the narrowness of the path to success really surprised me. And really, if you have a climate sensitivity that's much beyond the median of what scientists' best guess of the distribution of climate sensitivity is, there's no path to success with at least a 50% chance of achieving that success. That really surprised me. I expected to see a much broader path where we'd have more time to reach full net zero CO2 emissions, and, and that was just not the case. It's a very narrow path. 
Okay, can you explain narrow, please? Yeah, so in our study, we show that in order to have at least a 50% chance of achieving a tolerable climate and economic future, if the climate sensitivity is at three degrees Celsius, then we will need to reach net zero CO2 emissions by the year 2030. If the climate sensitivity is any higher than three degrees Celsius, it's not possible to limit warming to two degrees C Celsius in the year 2100 with a probability of greater than 50%. Okay, that's scary. As a private citizen, what are two things that I could do to move the needle? Well, it's really hard. And I, and I think that your question really gets to um, this, this sense of climate despair that I think a lot of people have because you feel that you're a single person and that this is a global historic challenge and there's not much that you can do. And I think the most important thing that any person can do is if you're really concerned about the climate, you really ought to become involved in not only politics, but also just societal discussions. And getting involved means more than posting about it on Facebook. Start going to town and, and local meetings, call your congressperson or your senator, perhaps not only agitate with politicians, but also with corporations. Businesses hold a lot of power in society, and they can do a lot of good for society if they're driven that way. And I think that they're responsive to people asking them to do things, whether that's voting with your dollars or, or voting in some other way or contacting them in another way. I think that's really the most important thing that people can do. Now, I, I grew up in small town New England where we had town meeting every year where people would get together and argue about the price of crayons and, and this sort of thing. And so I would really encourage people to show up more than once every four years. If you're passionate about this and you're concerned, I think you need to be involved in a bigger way. Yeah. So let's say I show up at one of these meetings. What do I say? I, I think that you say that we're really running out of time in order to reduce emissions and, and avert really significant climate impacts and that you're going to vote with your concern, you know, really demand responsiveness from your politicians. Is there a policy proposal that you think will really form a solid foundation for a network of policies going forward? Clearly, we need more than one policy. We need something that is far-reaching in all aspects of our lives. One thing that all your listeners are probably going to have in their mind is the Green New Deal. Certainly in its aspirations, it's sounding the right alarm. Whether or not the specifics are sufficient to prompt the change that we talk about in our paper, I'm really not sure. But I think that if you read the preamble to it, they talk about sort of the motivating purpose and really framing climate in terms of these great national challenges that we faced in the past, like the Great Depression. And I think that that's that's really the right way to think about the problem. Uh, another thing that I've been very encouraged by has been a lot of cities and states and, and other uh, localities have really continued to push for reducing emissions in various ways and reducing the reliance on fossil fuels in various ways. And I think that that's very important. Regardless of what the federal government does, it seems as though many states and other governments are very interested in pushing forward. And so that's been a great encouragement localities are taking this much more seriously than the federal government. So how did you get into this field? What's the source of your passion? So I'd say the source of my passion is really being a father of a young child. I feel much more invested in the future than I did before my son was born. Uh, I was an Eagle Scout when I, was a, when I was a boy, and I was really raised with a sense of citizenship, both locally, nationally, and also globally. 
And I think that it's really important for scientists and engineers to really use the skills that society has invested in them in order to improve society. And uh, for me, that, that has to do with sort of merging climate science and economics. I also do a lot of work in water resources, so trying to improve the utilization of water resources for people around the world. And uh, that really comes from a sense of, of citizenship. You know, it's my responsibility to improve the world in, in ways that I can. I agree with that wholeheartedly. That's what we try to do here, too. Well, here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I, I think people are are very resourceful and adaptive. I work as a professor. I work with a lot of young people, and I'm constantly impressed by their passion and their intelligence and their real drive to make the world a better place. The generations that are coming up are, are very passionate, and, and they care a lot about the world and people. Also, you know, if you take the long view of history, society and people have really been challenged with seemingly insurmountable existential crises. And we've continued to persist. Though the future might be hard, humanity will persist. That's very hopeful. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. We all know that the climate crisis is here and now, and that many of our loved ones will in fact be very much alive in the year 2100. What was new to me today is the perspective of considering the cost of inaction. Given that we now really know, we have a very good idea, what the consequences are for the planet, taking action is in fact the conservative choice. We would be acting to protect ourselves, our planet, and humankind. Looking at the total cost of trying to slow down global warming, Jonathan mentioned that 3% of total global gross product is an aggressive amount of spending. And I wanted to just put that into context. Current global GDP is about $80 trillion. So 3% of that would be $2.4 trillion. He compared it to the equivalent of the United States spending 3% on defense. So the U.S. GDP is about $21 trillion, and 3% is about $700 billion. If you put it in this frame, it sounds like a reasonable investment to ensure tolerable climate. The other perspective that was somewhat new to me is explicitly stating what it means to change behavior now. That we, today, will bear the burden, pay the cost of climate abatement without being the full beneficiary of our actions. Yes, there will be fewer particulates in the air. We will live less polluted lives, but a tolerable climate future belongs to a new generation. Even though the window for action is narrow, I was actually surprised that it existed at all. I'm pretty cynical, I suppose. I thought that the window had closed and that we are hurtling towards the certain future of an uninhabitable planet, one with no tolerable climate. Now I know there can still be one. Next week, our guest is Matt Jones. He's a historian of science and technology who is thinking, writing, and teaching about data, privacy, and state surveillance of communications. We'll be talking about data collection at scale, how the Fourth Amendment shapes the way we think about data privacy, 
and what it means to gain data literacy. What's an annoyance when Amazon is recommending something or Netflix is suggesting a movie you've seen and hated is very different in the law enforcement or national security realm. If you pick out someone wrong, you have a false positive. In both cases, what they're doing is leveraging vast amount of social data, both to create records on us and to create the kinds of profiling that enables to divide up different sorts of people and then make predictions about their activities, about their purchasing habits, about their value as a customer, and perhaps the dangers they might pose to a community. So we have to think a lot about both what commercial and governmental organizations can do with these analytic technologies. And we need collectively to have ever greater literacy in what it is that's possible, but also the dangers of it. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Sumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.